Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. As we look at Paul's letters to the Corinthians, we see three ways of handling church conflict and politics. You're listening to Grief, Love, and Church Politics by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading tonight is uh, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 15 through 2, verse 11. This is a, I would call it a relatively obscure part of the Pauline writings. It's not a place um, where you go and hear sermons very often. I've never heard a sermon on this. I've never preached a sermon on this. I doubt that many of you have heard a sermon on this, although when I think about how many sermons have been heard in this room, um, I think maybe some of you have. I don't know. But it's, um, it, this, is a, this is an interesting passage, and it lets us into the sort of the life and the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. Start at verse 15. Paul has just finished saying how he's, he's pleased that he, he's confident that the grace of God is working between him and the Corinthian church. And then he says, because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you may benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. That was Paul's plan, to visit twice. Before and after he went to Macedonia, those plans got changed. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. 
And what, have I, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you probably know that we have a policy here at LaGrave where um, we are not permitted to hire people in the office support staff, people who do office work, we are not permitted to hire LaGrave workers, LaGrave members. So if someone's, if we're hiring for, say, the bulletin secretary or the membership secretary or the administrative manager or even for the custodians, we have to look outside the church. Now, why do we do that? You are excellent people. Many of you have talents. And you're friendly, and you're kind, and you would make excellent colleagues. Why do we choose not to hire you for these jobs if you're looking for work? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of the main ones is church politics. When you work in the church office, all the information, all the complaints, all the notes come through you. And you see what is under the surface of the church, all the messiness, all the complications, all the complaints, all the fights. And it's not always pretty. Working in a church office, you see all of the things. In other churches where they don't have this policy, sometimes, and I've seen this happen with my own eyes, you hire someone from inside the church to work in the church office, and they come in loving their church, and they work there for a couple of years, and all they see underneath, and they see all the mess, and they see all the complaint, and all of a sudden, when they come to church, they feel totally different. They used to come to church and look around and see friends, and they'd worship, and it was joyful, and now they see people with problems and people who complain. They see all the struggles, and sometimes... That's so disillusioning that they quit their job, and sometimes it's so disillusioning that they quit their job and leave the church. So that's why we have this policy, because of church politics. There have always been politics in the church. Always. Sometimes we like to have this romantic notion that the early church was this pristine and beautiful thing. And in the early church, right after the Holy Spirit came, everybody loved each other and felt great about each other, and everybody loved Jesus perfectly, and there were no fights, and everything was kumbaya all the time. But if that's the impression you have, anyone who has that impression, you just need to read the New Testament more carefully because you can see in the New Testament that church politics already existed. You can see it in a passage like this one. In this passage, Paul is wrestling with church politics. He's wrestling with his relationship with the Corinthian church, which is fraught, and he's trying to clean up the mess. And because it's a kind of a messy passage, it's not the kind of passage that attracts attention. It's not the kind of passage that pastors preach on, and it's not the kind of passage we go to in our devotions. But I want to go to it tonight. Because I think when we watch Paul doing church politics, we can learn something about the church politics that we will inevitably face as we move forward as brothers and sisters in Christ. And to do that, I need to fill you in on what the problem was. 
because I don't think many of you know what was going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. It's complicated and it's below the surface, and I had to do a lot of reading to figure it out this week. So let me go through the story. Paul planted the Corinthian church. Okay, he started it. And he started it in his second missionary journey. You can read that in Acts 18. He goes there right after he's been in Athens. And he goes to Corinth and he does what he often did when he planted a church. He goes to the synagogue because he knows he can get an audience there. And he preaches in the synagogue and some people are listening to him. A few are becoming believers, including Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul hits it off with them because they're tent makers like he is. So he starts working with them. And that way he can have a little money. And so he stays a little longer, preaches more. Eventually, Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia with a big gift. And at that point, Paul doesn't have to work anymore. Now he can do ministry full time. And it's a great arrangement. And the church really starts to grow. There's conflict in the synagogue. Some of the Jews believe, most of them don't. So they kick him out. He can't preach there anymore. And he goes to a building right next door where he starts to preach in a house there. And the church grows and it flourishes. And there's churches starting to grow in neighboring communities. Paul stays there a year and a half preaching with these people. After a year and a half, the time comes for him to move on. Maybe the money runs out. I don't know. He goes first to Ephesus and eventually back to Antioch, which is his home base. And that's the end of his second missionary journey. But he never forgets the Corinthians. If you've been in a church a year and a half, and especially if you're a church planter, the relationship between a person who plants a church and those people who are right there at the beginning, that is a close relationship because you go through the ringer with those people. You're on your knees with those people. You weep with those people. You do life and death with those people. So Paul has this really close relationship with them. And you can see that in 2 Corinthians 6, where he talks about the Corinthians, how he's opened wide his heart to them. He has deep affection for them. There's a strong bond there. And when he's away, he keeps that bond in the way that people did back then. He writes letters. In fact, we know he wrote at least four letters to the Corinthian church. We only have two of them, but we know that he wrote at least Four. The first letter was written probably early after he left the church, and it's a general letter of encouragement. We know it exists because of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul mentions it. It's a general letter of encouragement when things are going well. But sometime after that first letter, which we don't have, things start to deteriorate. Other preachers come to Corinth, and these preachers are subtly trying to undermine Paul. And they're doing that with flash. These guys are really, really great orators. They're brilliant. And these guys speak in tongues. And they say that they, Paul was great, but you know, we've, we've come to a higher level of understanding. We've, we've grown in our understanding of what is spiritual and what isn't. And, and so they, they talk about, they get this atmosphere of pride and competitive spirituality. And it gets bad enough that some of the other members of the church are being won over to this, this, this competitive, flashy spirituality. Paul hears about this. And so he writes a second letter to the Corinthian church, which is our 1 Corinthians. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you can hear that he's sort of trying to bring things under control. There's some general advice to them and encouragement, 
But there's also things like, hey, I'm an apostle. I have authority. It's not about all these people. It's about Jesus. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Forget it. It's about Jesus. And it's not about speaking in tongues and being flashy. It's faith, hope, and love, and especially love. You can hear them trying to rein that in. It doesn't work. 1 Corinthians is a great letter, but it doesn't, in the short term, do what Paul is hoping it to do. Sometime later, word comes to Paul that this rebellion, this undermining continues, and now there's one person in particular who's at the head of it. One person. That's the person referenced in chapter 2 that I read. I'll get back to that later. One person who is really undermining Paul, questioning his authority, and this person is really bringing a lot of people alongside him. And now it looks like there's an outright rebellion in the church, like a coup, and like Paul is going to be on the outs. That crisis causes Paul to go to Corinth. He makes a special trip when he hears about this rebellion led by this one person. That's the painful visit that we hear referenced in verse 1 of chapter 2. Talks about a painful visit. That's that next visit to Corinth. He goes there, and he goes there with the express purpose of trying to rein in this rebellion. And he talks to the people face to face. And he calls them out. They have a congregational meeting or something, and it doesn't go well. Instead of people coming around to his way, they harden themselves. And Paul leaves in anger and in grief. The people who are there are in anger and in grief. And Paul is so desperate that he writes a third letter. And this third letter we do not have. And in that third letter, this is that letter referenced in verse 3 and 4 of our passage. It's a letter that grieves him and that he writes with many tears. And it's clearly a letter that brings great grief to the Corinthian congregation too. This is kind of the low point. Paul's been there, been rejected. He's written an angry letter that brought him to tears and brought the congregation to tears. And it's pretty clear at this point, Paul's lying in bed at night going, I can't believe it's come to this. This church that I was there for a year and a half and spent my lifeblood and everything is falling apart. Things are so bad that Paul doesn't want to visit them. Things are so tense He was planning to go to visit them before he went to Macedonia and after because of the tension, because of the pain of that last visit, he decides to wait until after. He cannot face them. So great is his grief. Fortunately, something breaks. While he's in Macedonia, Paul hears that there's been a change. Somehow, maybe his letter, the Holy Spirit working through his letter, changes the hearts of the church. They move back towards Paul. This one person who's been leading the rebellion against Paul is humbled and is repentant. Finally, things are coming back into shape. And so from Macedonia, Paul writes the fourth letter, our second Corinthians. And he writes them partly to express thanksgiving that they've they've finally come around, but also to continue to clean up the mess because the mess is the fallout of this political situation is still very much there. And you can hear that in our passage. You hear Paul defend himself, right? Some of his opponents had accused him of being fickle. Look at this guy. You can't trust him. He says he's going to come twice. He only comes once. Paul says, no, I, I, I didn't do that. I came so I wouldn't grieve you. So he's still defending himself, but he's also being gracious. He says that that man that led that rebellion against me. I've forgiven him. You should forgive him. You should forgive him too. 
you should bring him back in. You hear Paul doing church politics. On the one hand, still confronting, still pushing, still steering. On the other hand, being magnanimous and full of grief, full of compassion, trying, trying to manage and, and trying to make that balance between pushing and mercy. As a Bible nerd, I think it's really interesting to track this relationship with Paul and the Corinthian church and see Paul in real time trying to make nice with them, trying to work things out. And as that story comes together, as you begin to see the big picture, I think there's three things that we can learn, briefly, three things we can learn as we deal with struggle in church politics in our own setting. First, we can learn that church has always been messy. There have always been fights in church, there have always been misunderstandings, and there have always been situations that are so bad, they bring people to tears and sleepless nights. And in a strange way, that's comforting. Why is it comforting? Because every generation thinks that the troubles of their generation are the worst they've ever seen. And how is the church going to survive this? And surely this is it. This is the end. And we've made such a mess of things. And we do. We do make a mess of things. But after watching 2,000 years and seeing it happen already to Paul himself in the New Testament, we realize that we'll be okay. And Paul himself in this passage points the Corinthian church and us to the foundation and to the reason why we know it will be okay. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's promises are yes in Christ. He has anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Looking at Paul and looking at the church, it's a mess, but Paul keeps looking at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that firm foundation and that promise guaranteeing their inheritance, and he knows it's going to be okay. And so do we. Second, when we look at the Corinthian church and the way Paul talks about this conflict here, we see that feelings matter. Feelings matter. The emotional shape of a conflict matters. Church conflicts are not just about theology and morality and getting that right, although they're certainly about that. They're also about our feelings and being sensitive to each other and caring about how other people react. Second Corinthians is full of vulnerability on Paul's part. Paul revealing what's going on in his heart. I talked about it in Second Corinthians 6. He, he says, I open wide my heart to you, Corinthians. Please open wide your heart to me also. Second Corinthians 6.11. And in our passage, you can hear him say, this greet me. I was in tears when I wrote this letter. This really hurt. And he also says, I know it hurt you. I know you were grieving too. Language of feeling. Paul's paying attention to that. And if you have time, go and read the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Remember how vulnerable Paul is there? He opens up and says, when I was in Asia, I was, I was so upset and down. It was almost, I, I wished I would die, he says. Paul expresses his feelings because Emotions matter. How we treat each other and, and how we react to each other and, and being sensitive about that, absolutely, from the beginning, is part of how we do this. It's not just about theology, morals. It's, it's about emotions, too. The Spirit fills that part of us. Third thing, 
That little verse about Satan and his schemes is a helpful reminder of the kind of mindset that destroys churches. So right at the end of the passage, after he shows his vulnerability, after he tells them to forgive this guy, he says, I have forgiven him in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now that could just be a general uh, word that when we're fighting each other, Satan's at work. Maybe it's that, but I think it's more specific. Satan tries to destroy the church by many means, but one of his main means is a spirit of accusation. Satan's means, one of his main means, is a spirit of accusation, and we know this because it's in his name. Do you remember what the word Satan means? It comes from a Hebrew word, shatan, which means the adversary and the accuser, the adversary who accuses. That's literally what his name means. And not only is it what his name means, that's what you see him doing in the Old Testament, right? Think of Job. What does he do to Job? Goes to God and accuses him. Ah, that Job, you think he's so great. If if you didn't bless him so much, he, he wouldn't act that way. He accuses Job of being insincere. Lesser known passage, Zechariah 3, describes Satan doing the exact same thing before the Lord about the high priest Joshua. Look at that priest. He's a shambles. He's a mess. He's not fit to be your priest. He accuses Joshua before the Lord. And one more, Psalm 109, verse 4, the psalmist talks about people who are surrounding him and throwing lies at him, saying falsehoods, and he calls them his satans, his shatan, his accusers. The devil wants to get us in a state of accusation. Sometimes that happens when the state of accusation is directed against ourself. Often, we get into a state of accusation when instead of just being self-critical and self-examining, we become self-condemning. I'm no good, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless. Satan tries to drive us to despair through self-condemnation. No one who's a child of God and has been forgiven by Jesus Christ and who has had Jesus say, you are my beloved, should ever sink into despair. So that's one way that the spirit of accusation works. The other way is when we start with the spirit of accusation with each other. The church falls into the devil's schemes and into the spirit of accusation when we start looking at each other and say, I think that that person is one of those kind of people. She's got a rainbow flag in her front yard. He's a trumper. He's against women in office. Can you believe that? He's got this political sign in his yard. She's got that political sign. When Christians give in to the spirit of suspicion and accusation, they are getting caught up in the devil's schemes. But Peter, we have to be able to disciple each other, right? We've got to be able to confront each other. There's times when we have to confront each other if we think another person is erring. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. What's the difference between a spirit of accusation and a healthy spirit of discipline? The answer, very Pauline, is love. Accusation pursues the truth without love. Discipline pursues the truth with love. And we can look at 1 Corinthians 13 and just run through it, and you can get a sense of how that goes. 
In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love seeks to honor others. Accusation dishonors others. It demeans them. Love, says Paul, is not easily angered. I think we know that accusation loves anger. Accusation feeds outrage and feeds on it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Accusation never forgets a slight. Accusation is a mean accountant. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Accusation does the opposite. Accusation loves it when the person on the other side fails or falls. In our passage, Paul is celebrating the end of the spirit of accusation between himself and the Corinthian church. And the triumph of the Holy Spirit restoring or beginning to restore a spirit of trust and love and joy where there had been grief and tears. This can be done. It's been done many times before. It's another way of saying that in 2 Corinthians, in our passage, Paul is celebrating the triumph of Jesus. Jesus, who triumphed over the accuser. Jesus, who placed his Holy Spirit on all of us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Jesus, who would not let his accusers win in Corinth and won't let them win in Grand Rapids either. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, your word is full of riches, unfathomable riches. And, it, and in, in your word, we see, we, we see all the mess, um, Lord. We see all the mess that we make and that generations before us have made. But bigger than the mess is your grace and your spirit and your power to overcome all our sins and all our miseries. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are our foundation, that you love us, that you've placed your spirit in our hearts as a guarantee of our future inheritance. Lord, help us to live in joy together as your children. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.